Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi, and this, if we're being honest with each other, is not the show we originally planned to do. I'm Holly Fry. So we thought we were going to talk about celebrity bodies that have been snatched. Some for ransom and some for reasons unknown to us. We were going, for example, to tell the story of the theft of Charlie Chaplin's body and how his wife, Una, wanted nothing to do with that ransoming. In fact, she said of the situation, quote, Charlie would have thought it rather ridiculous. We were also probably going to mention... Napoleon's penis, and how Time magazine called it, quote, a maltreated strip of buckskin shoelace back in 1927 when it went on display in New York City. We probably would have also talked about how Thomas Paine's body can best be described as being scattered around the world. Literally, a jawbone here, a foot there, and that that didn't happen until after his corpse had been stored in an attic trunk for several years in England. And we were going to include how, back in 1982, Groucho Marx's ashes were stolen from a cemetery in Mission Hills, California, only to be later found 12 miles away in Burbank. The joke there is that Marx once said, quote, I'd never be caught dead in Burbank. But the truth is, he may or may not have really said that at all. But here's the thing, we aren't doing that show, because while that research was taking place, we noticed something interesting. There was one thing that stood out while we were reading these and similar stories. There was a whole lot of skull theft, or cranioclepty. Cranioclepty is a new term coined by academic Colin Dickey, who's the author of the book Cranioclepty, Grave Robbing, and the Search for Genius. There was a time when people wanted to own the skulls of geniuses, and that sometimes was for study, for private or public display, or to the hopes of many, for financial gain. According to Dickey, a rising interest in phrenology at the beginning of the 19th century really helped motivate some of this skull theft. To be clear, Mark Twain, who did not think highly of the practice, did sit for a head reading. That was while he was alive and his skull was securely attached to his body. One's skull did not have to be separated from its body for phrenology to be practiced. Popular then, but now a discredited theory, phrenology was an idea that Viennese physiologist and neuroanatomist Franz Joseph Gall began to popularize in the 1790s. He called it cranioscopy. It involved the detailed study of the shape and size of the cranium. The shape of a person's skull was a supposed indication of their character and mental abilities. It was believed you could learn things like how religious they were or if they had a temper from the skull alone. 
Curiosity left many people wondering if something like genius or innate talent could be determined by the landscape of a skull. The idea of taking a skull of a famous person, not just a famous person, but specifically an artistic genius, would be mediated by a desire to try and make visible that ineffable, invisible quality of genius that you couldn't do from their works themselves, Dickey has said. A music bump, as he has described it, for example, would indicate the area of the brain that corresponded to musical genius. Snatching bodies from graves to sell them to medical and anatomy schools was probably the most common reason for disinterred corpses, but it is definitely not the only reason people have disturbed the dead. Some corpses are snatched for ransom, some for taboo activities, such as in acts of occultism. There are lots of different reasons. There are even some accounts that suggest that the attempt to snatch and ransom Elvis Presley's corpse, for instance, might have just been a convoluted way to get his grave moved to Graceland property. As strange as this may sound, and really actually as strange as it is to say, too, it turns out many people have had their head stolen. With that in mind, it's a little bit early on, but we're going to go ahead and take a break now for a word from our sponsor. When we return, we will kick things off and have a whole lot of stolen skulls all together, starting with our first one. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. 
Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Welcome back to Criminalia. Okay, let's kick off our survey of skull theft and those who stole them. So let's start our trail of cranioclepti with a fairly recent theft. Yes, this is both a historical and a modern phenomenon. Director F.W. Murnau was an early pioneer of silent movies and is best remembered for his 1922 vampire film Nosferatu, which was an unofficial adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Murnau died in a car accident in Santa Barbara, California in 1931, when he was just 42 years old. In July of 2015, his skull was discovered to be missing from his grave, from his iron coffin at Stansdorf Southwestern Cemetery in Germany. It's about 12 miles outside of Berlin. This was not the first time that the grave had been targeted. During one attempted robbery in the 1970s, that iron coffin was actually damaged. Because candle wax was found at the latest scene, some have theorized the theft could have been part of an occult ritual rather than someone looking for a Hollywood souvenir. That is according to cemetery manager Olaf Illefeld, who spoke to the Washington Post about the disappearance. We can't not include something from the collection of Yale's infamous Skull and Bones Secret Society. They're known for this kind of thing. The powerful Apache leader Geronimo surrendered to the U.S. government at Skeleton Canyon, just north of the Mexico border, in 1886 during the American Frontier Wars. His legend includes more than his life as a leader, warrior, and healer, though. It includes the story of his skull. In 1909, six members of Skull and Bones, allegedly including Prescott Bush, father and grandfather of U.S. Presidents George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, respectively, dug up Geronimo's grave, oh, allegedly dug up his grave, while serving as army volunteers in Oklahoma during World War I. Lawsuits have been filed over the years in attempts to retrieve Geronimo's skull, but none have been successful. The society also claims to have the skulls of Pancho Villa and Martin Van Buren and a skeleton they believe to be Madame de Pompadour. What would they want with such prizes? Who knows? Though there's certainly been plenty of lore and conspiracy theories about the whole business over the years. We are next going to travel from Connecticut all the way to Vienna. The skulls of famous Austrian composers during the phrenology craze were in pretty swift demand. Cranioscopy was born at the University of Vienna, where Gall taught. And we have three famous Viennese composer skulls to talk about. Beethoven, Mozart, and Haydn. Let's start with Beethoven. Today, most of Ludwig von Beethoven's remains are below ground in Vienna's Central Cemetery, but not quite all of him. Pieces of the composer's skull were removed from the rest of his skeleton during the mid-19th century. After his funeral in 1827, Beethoven's body was interred at a cemetery in Waring, northwest of Vienna. 
1863, scientists exhumed his body to study his remains, though what exactly was being studied is a little bit unclear. It's suggested that with the popularity of phrenology, experts may have wanted to, quote, read his cranium. For instance, could they find that elusive music bump? We do know that during the nine days it was available to those above ground, Romeo Seligman, an Austrian physician and professor of the history of medicine at the University of Vienna, reportedly acquired fragments of Beethoven's skull. In 1888, his body was exhumed a second time in order to reinter him at the Zentralfriedhof, Vienna's central cemetery, as part of a bigger effort to consolidate the city's burial grounds. And this is when the theft of his skull was noticed. The pieces in Seligman's possession eventually made their way to the Ira F. Brilliant Center for Beethoven Studies at San Jose University, where, in 2015, it was concluded that those pieces couldn't actually have come from Beethoven's skull. There are some theories about who may have gotten their hands on Beethoven's skull the first time he was exhumed. William Meredith, director at the Ira F. Brilliant Center, names Gerhard von Brüning, a good friend of Beethoven's, who he thinks may have taken the pieces with him in 1863. Or he might not have, but those pieces which we know were taken by someone are definitely missing. Our next Austrian composer is Mozart. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was buried in Vienna's St. Mark's Cemetery in 1791. He laid at rest for only about a decade, before a gravedigger named Joseph Rothmeyer snatched, or allegedly snatched, his skull. The composer's skull became a family heirloom of sorts, passed through generations until the early 20th century, when it was given to the International Mozarteum Foundation in Salzburg. Still today, researchers aren't sure that the skull really does belong to Mozart. Tests have been inconclusive, and recently, there's been more bad luck. Genetic material from two teeth removed from the skull was analyzed and compared with DNA samples that had been taken in 2004 from bones of two skeletons exhumed from the Mozart family grave at Salzburg's St. Sebastian Cemetery. There was no match. We read that although it's still housed at the Mozarteum, the skull is actually no longer on display, but we can't confirm that. Anyone in Vienna want to go check it out? Maybe we can have a criminalia field trip to Vienna, which would be fine by me. We're okay with that. (laughs) So next up, we have the composer Joseph Haydn, whose head was stolen by a guy who had been his friend when he was still alive. That friend, Joseph Rosenbaum, was an accountant for the Esterhazy family of Austria, a wealthy, noble family who were the composer's patrons. Rosenbaum recorded every detail of the theft, it seems, from the preparation to the execution of it and the aftermath. This was not his first skull heist. His first was a skull taken from a well-known German actress named Elizabeth Betty Roos, who had died during childbirth. Seven months later, in May 1809, he stole Haydn's skull. In both cases, he actually hired a body snatcher to do the dirty work for him, so technically, he didn't steal it. Some historians have theorized that the theft of Betty's skull was actually just a trial run. Rosenbaum had a fancy display case made to hold Haydn's skull. It was black with a glass front and topped with a golden lyre, and the skull was in his possession and in that case for 11 years. According to Colin Dickey, 
he really felt as though he was doing a great service by desecrating this great man's corpse so that his head could be preserved. And that's true for many who were interested in skulls and how they fit into the idea of genius at this time. In 1820, it was discovered Haydn had lost his head when his body was exhumed in preparation to be moved to a new tomb. When authorities came around with questions, Rosenbaum and his accomplice, Johann Peter, both claimed they didn't know anything illegal had taken place and that the skull they had been given was given to them legally. They complied with the police and turned the skull over to authorities. Well, a skull was given to the authorities, but it was not Haydn's skull. Rosenbaum actually still had that in his possession. When it was later noted the skull was too small to belong to an adult male, Joseph was questioned again and his home was searched. He again surrendered a skull, but again, it wasn't Haydn's skull. How many skulls does this man have around his house? I'm, I'm really <laughs> beginning to wonder this. The real skull was sewn into a mattress in Rosenbaum's home. The second fake skull, thought to be real by everyone but the man who stole it, was then buried with Haydn's real body. Rosenbaum willed Haydn's skull to Johann Peter with intentions that it should be given to the Society for the Friends of Music. It was not. And when Peter died, his wife tried to give the skull to the Esterhazy family, who, ironically, refused it because they thought that Haydn's skull was with his body, already in its tomb. The real skull was next given to Peter's physician, Karl Haller, who in turn gave it to his mentor, pathologist Karl von Rokotansky. In the 1890s, Rokotansky finally got the skull to the Society for the Friends of Music. In 1946, another attempt was made to return the skull to its rightful home, but again, the Esterhazy family refused it. Haydn's skull wasn't reunited with its body until 1954, after a 145-year journey. That is a whole lot of skullduggery. That story of his is an amazing skull story in particular. <laughs> no, I swear it's his head. No, it isn't. Right, no, no we, ha- we have it. Go away. I told them we've already got one. <laughs> We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. If you worry your grave will be desecrated after your death, and you write about that, did you just dare the universe to make it so? When we return, we'll meet Sir Thomas Brown. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's get going with more tales of stolen skulls. So, of course, Viennese composers were not the only ones with in-demand skulls. The English doctor, author, and philosopher Sir Thomas Brown was well known as the writer of Religio Medici, a collection of essays on philosophy and religion and described as a spiritual memoir. Interestingly, he was known to worry about the desecration of his grave after his death. He once wrote, quote, But who knows the fate of his bones, or how often he is to be buried? Who hath the oracles of his ashes, or whither they are to be scattered? And he argued that, quote, To be gnawed out of our graves, to have our skulls made drinking bowls, and our bones turned into pipes to delight and sport our enemies, are tragical abominations. Because of his statements, Brown has become a kind of patron saint of stolen skulls, because yes, his too was nabbed. 
troubles for the corpse of Sir Thomas Brown began in 1840, 158 years after his death. Buried in St. Peter Mancroft Church, Norfolk, his grave was inadvertently disturbed while a vault was being dug next to his plot. That was the grave of Mrs. Bowman, wife of then-vicar of St. Peter Mancroft. Opportunists are everywhere, and the sexton, George Potter, seized this moment. He stole Brown's skull from his coffin and sold it to a local surgeon, Edward Lubbock. Lubbock, who died in 1847, willed the skull to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital Museum, which put it on display. Despite repeated requests by the vicar to the museum to have the skull returned to the church and to its rightful owner, that did not happen. In fact, in 1893, the hospital's board responded as follows, quote, There is no legal title to or property in any such relic, so there can be no question that this and all other specimens in the hospital museum belong inalienably to the governors. That no instance is known of such a claim for restitution having been made after nearly half a century on any museum, and were the governors to yield to this request, they might be unable to resist similar claims. That the presence in a museum of such a relic, reverently preserved and protected, cannot be viewed as merely an object of idle curiosity. Rather, it will usefully serve to direct attention to and remind visitors of the works of the great scholar and physician. It was not until 1922, 240 years after his death and 82 years since it had been stolen, that his skull was finally reunited with his body. Now, off to Sweden. During his lifetime, Swedish philosopher and theologian Emanuel Swedenborg published more than 50 works and influenced Emerson, Dostoevsky, and William Blake, among many others. He likely never imagined his skull would one day be auctioned off to the highest bidder, other than Sir Thomas Brown, really, who worries about such a thing. Forty-five years after his death, in 1772, a Swedish merchant captain named Ludwig Granholm stole Emanuel's skull in hopes of selling it as a relic. He didn't sell it, or maybe he just could never get the price he wanted. But when he died in 1819, he requested the skull be restored to its body. It wasn't. Over the years, it went from person to person and place to place and spent time on display as part of a phrenological collection in London. By 1978, it still hadn't been returned to its rightful owner and was auctioned at Sotheby's, where it was described as, quote, unusually long and narrow, jawbone lacking. It went to the Swedish Royal Academy of Science. Let's jump over to Spain and talk about the skull of Spanish painter Francisco Goya, considered one of the last of the old masters. Goya, head intact, died during his self-imposed exile in Bordeaux in 1828 and was buried at La Chartreuse. Sixty years later, when his remains were exhumed for repatriation, Joaquin Pereira, the Spanish consul, noted, quote, There were human bones, but absolutely no sign of the head. The discovery came by chance, and then no one admitted, at least not to the public, that the skull was missing until his body was finally laid to rest in Madrid in the church of San Antonio de la Florida. The official record states, quote, the skeleton lacks the head because, according to tradition, on the great painter's death, his head was entrusted to a doctor 
for scientific study and was never returned at the time of burial. This was why it was not found at the subsequent exhumation. Is that a true and accurate report? Uh, maybe? <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Another interesting piece of the puzzle is that a painting, a work completed in 1849 by Dionisio Fierros, is said to be of Goya's skull. Is that real? Is that fake? Listen, all we know for sure is someone at some point took Goya's skull. And then there's William Shakespeare. The playwright was buried in Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon, England in 1616. Scientists may not be able to open William Shakespeare's grave, but grave robbers sure have. One account from 1879 suggests a Dr. Frank Chambers led grave robbers to Shakespeare's grave in 1794, where the group stole the bard's skull. According to that story, Chambers then sold the skull for 300 pounds. Until a 2016 investigation of his grave, there was little evidence to determine whether such stories were true. It was in 2016 when scientists were allowed to perform the first archaeological investigation using GPR scanning. That's ground-penetrating radar. And they did that to produce images of what lies underground without disturbing the grave itself. Shakespeare, they found, is buried in a shallow tomb, only about three feet deep, and appears to be wrapped in a shroud. Beside him are family members, including his wife. They also discovered his grave is not in its original state. They found a repair had been made to the stone floor supporting the grave marker, and they found the head end of the burial mound has been disturbed. So, where is that skull today? Maybe it's with Shakespeare's body, but that seems highly unlikely at this point. A follow-up to the Chambers story suggests that the men panicked the night they stole the skull and hid it in St. Leonard's Church in Bealey. But, uh, there's always a but, isn't there? During that 2016 investigation, the Bealey skull was also examined, and sad news here, it was determined that the skull was of a 70-year-old woman. So, what's done cannot be undone. I'm glad you said it and not me. I'm superstitious. <laughs> <laughs> I have no time for such things. Do you have time for a little a little sip of embalming fluid? I have time for a little, you know, tipple. In thinking about this one, it's tricky, right? It's a lot of skull talk. Yes. Obviously, the easy thing is to say, make any cocktail and put it in a mirage <laughs> container that looks like a skull. But not everybody has that handy, and that's no fun. What I wanted to do was make a drink that looked slightly browned look of an aged skull. A little lighter, a little more solid than fluid you can easily see through. Now, the obvious answer here is to do something like a white Russian or... Listen, I never want to do the obvious things. No, so, we, and we haven't in six seasons, so let's not start now. <laughs> I don't know. Some of them might seem obvious to somebody, but this also got me thinking of things that I would enjoy drinking because thinking about people's skulls going missing and how you can't really even trust that you get to rest right? in peace <laughs> makes me all the more invested in uh, my carpe diem philosophy of enjoying every minute you possibly can. So I wanted something super delicious and a little sweet. I started to think also of things that were not Kahlua and cream or a white Russian that would still look right. 
and I thought about root beer floats. Which I love, so let's start there. (laughs) Good. You're going to love this then. The thing is, though, too, I didn't want to just do an alcoholic root beer float, which are super yummy. I'm down for all of the desserty beverages that are like milkshakes, floats, etc., with a little bit of Uh alcohol in them, but... I wanted something that you could have more than one of. Usually if you have one of those, you're full. It's over. I wanted something that was a little bit lighter, but still had that flavor and was yummy. So I'm going to call this one the bubbling skull. It looks like a skull, but it's lighter than a white Russian or a float. (laughs) And it's going to start with two ounces of a non-dairy milk. So an oat milk, an Mm -hmm. almond milk, something like that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Then you're going to pour in one ounce of bourbon, which I know will make you happy. I'm already, I'm following this recipe closely. (laughs) Then a half ounce of amaretto. And then you're going to top that with about four ounces of root beer. Now, I like a sugar-free root beer here because it, the point is that we're not making a heavy drink where you can only drink one and you feel full. That's also why we're doing a lighter milk base, right? I used oat milk, which is one of my big favorites. Mm -hmm. Even like the same, like an almond milk from brand to brand will behave a little bit differently. So I won't make any predictions there. You might want to experiment if that bothers you. I honestly found like it smoothed out once I had the root beer in anyway, even though I tried a couple of different milks. They Mm -hmm. all came out pretty much the same. Delicious and with the non-drinker husband seal of approval, who went, I can't taste the bourbon in this, (laughs) which for him is like saying, have you made magic? (laughs) That's a delicious... Very desserty feeling drink without that feeling that you want to just sit quietly and burp all night that sometimes happens <laughs> if you drink a, a milkshake with alcohol in it. Totally true. <laughs> just everyone leave me alone. I'm just going to burp on the couch for the next hour. That's all I have time for. I have no regrets, but I have lots of burps. <laughs> you won't have that with this. And then you have root beer on hand, which who doesn't want that? Delicious. Delicious. I have been looking at like sarsaparillas and various other root sodas. And I, I'm already immediately like, oh, this could be really kind of an interesting little try on some of those other ones, not just root beer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice. You get that creaminess like you would with the float. But I always want to reiterate, play with proportions. If you want a little more milk and a little less root beer, that's fine. If you want a little bump up the amaretto or the bourbon, you can, but please drink responsibly. Like the thing about bourbon for this that makes it great is that it already has that low note of caramel to it. So it really blends nicely with root beer. It's really lovely. The mocktail version of this is, of course, easy as pie. Just leave out your bourbon. I would add a little almond syrup to get that amaretto note. But other than that, you could just leave it. If you want to mimic the idea that there is something else in there, you could also put an ounce of very sturdily steeped black tea in there to change the profile a little, make it taste a little more like a cocktail, like a grown-up thing and not just like a non-ice cream float. (laughs) (laughs) The easiest thing on earth. We hope you try it. And if you do, we hope it's delicious and that you enjoy it. You can always hang us on social media with the hashtag Criminalia and show us your drinks. If you put it in a skull-shaped beverage container, you're going to get bonus points. I'm just going to say it. I don't mean to play favorites, but that's what's up. (laughs) (laughs) But we do. (laughs) Listen, I'm a human. Uh, Thank you for spending time with us this week. We hope we will see you right back here next week when there is another doozy of a grave robbing story right here on Criminalia.
Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.